0: How do you plead? Politicians, regulators, even lawyers are increasingly defining the frame of what constitutes sustainable investments. Is that good or bad? How do, should investors respond? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm Head of Investment at J.O. Hambro Capital Management and Regnan. My guest today is my good friend Howard Covington. Howard has been both an investment banker and CEO of an asset manager. A mathematician, he is a fellow of the Institute of Physics, an honorary fellow of the Isaac Newton Institute, and until recently the inaugural chair of the Alan, Alan Turing Institute. Quite a list, and that's only a few of the highlights. He also likes to do hard physics before breakfast. Howard, a fascinating career, but What we're interested in today is your current position as chair of Client Earth, which is described on Wikipedia as Europe's leading public interest environmental law firm. Howard, welcome to Organising the Future. Thank you very much. Very good to be here. And I have to, before I start, I'd I'd like to give you a word of thanks, because we first met quite a long time ago, back in 2008, when we were talking about how do we get portfolio managers to sell banks when they're obviously going bankrupt. But more importantly, you were then director of the Science Museum. And you reintroduced me to to the joys of the maths behind climate change and facilitated some really interesting forums where we were discussing climate. So I have to thank you for prodding me into <laughs> a, a, an evolving career in the sustainable investment world. So thank you for that. Too. I'm very glad I did. Um, I've recently written a chapter for somebody's book on the future of sustainable investing. And, and in there, one of the things I I, I I touched upon was in the battle between the accountants and lawyers to save the world, you know, if you like the King Kong versus Godzilla Who's actually going to to, to to win out? And I think I came down on the side of the, the lawyers uh, more because they could drive action over disclosure. And so that's why I was really interested to, uh, to have you here today to talk about your work at Client Earth. But but first, let's talk a little bit about the science, because you are a scientist. You've been privileged to work with some of the leading scientists in this country and, and around the world. And I, I think yeah, it would be good to talk about the urgency that the science is underpinning now, and which is often, I think, missed in the debate. Is that we are really at an important potential set of tipping points.
1: Yes, <clears throat> there was a, a very interesting paper in the uh, US science magazine Science in the last uh, two or three weeks, which analysed Exxon's climate science dating back to 1970. And uh, it was absolutely clear to Exxon back in 1970 where climate change was headed. And the skillfulness of Exxon's climate modelling was analysed in this paper. And their climate models were as good as it gets. They knew precisely uh, how the climate system was going to evolve back in 1970. So the science has been well understood, even by Exxon right back then. Um, the, <clears throat> so, I mean, we understand perfectly well now, uh, within, within uh, ranges of error, of course, but we understand perfectly well um, <clears throat> how emissions uh, lead to higher concentrations of greenhouse gases and how these produce uh, higher uh, global temperatures. The new bit of science, which has, has really come out in the last five years, something like that, is um, a greater understanding of tipping points. And um, it seems to be the case that there are about a dozen um, tipping points where the climate system changes from one state to another. And these uh, we will trip these somewhere between one and a half degrees of warming and and maybe three or four degrees of warming.
0: And they will produce some quite startling effects. Yeah, I think you know, Professor Tim Lenton at the University of Exeter, and Tim was on a previous podcast talking about tipping points. Now, tipping points can both be positive in the move towards more sustainable science, more sustainable technology and how that can help, or they can be more dramatic tipping points in the climate and having very significant influence. Could you sort of yep. talk about your view on, on the, both the, the optimistic side and maybe your slightly more pessimistic views?
1: So on the optimistic side, there are social tipping points. And these are best understood, I think, in terms of a typical S-shaped penetration curve a market penetration curve and the way these curves start up is they grow very very slowly to begin with and then they go through a period of exponential growth and uh, it's when that exponential growth begins that you go through a social tipping point and we're right at one now with electric vehicles for example the the um the sales penetration of electric vehicles is going up exponentially fast. Uh, The use of um, of solar panels and and, uh, wind turbines is also going up exponentially fast. Those are very good tipping points. As is always the case with tipping points, things move a lot faster than people expect. And uh, in this case, the International Energy Authority has been, for the last decade, been making quite conservative forecasts of how, how fast uh, wind and solar and electric vehicles will increase, and the, the reality has far exceeded their forecasts. So the note of optimism is that when um, forecasters such as the International Energy Agency say we're going too slowly there is a reasonable chance that we're actually going faster than they think. So that is grounds for optimism. However, on the other side, um, the climate scientists have underestimated the impact of warming so that we are currently seeing effects of warming in, in, in the shape of um, uh, extreme weather events, um, uh, droughts, uh, heat waves, uh, extreme weather, extreme rainfall. We're seeing these now, and they were not expected for at least another half a degree of warming. So, um, offsetting the good news about social tipping points is some bad news about how quickly climate impacts are arriving. And then there's the there's the slightly intimidating news. Uh, about the risk of triggering tipping points uh, as we go through the next two or three
0: decades. And some of the consequences of those tipping points are probably a little bit more dramatic than many things. I know you have a, a rather uh, extreme, <coughs> not extreme you know, view, but a pointing out the science can lead to some uh, very unpleasant consequences yep. if we get this wrong.
1: So... Um, We are probably through uh, a couple of tipping points already, and these are the the, the points at which the West Antarctic ice sheet uh, begins uh, uh, an unstoppable uh, breaking up, and and the same for the Greenland ice sheet, but it is thought that the the breaking up of both those ice sheets, although now likely to be unstoppable, will take place over many centuries, maybe a thousand years. Um, So... Even though we've gone through those tipping points, we'll probably as humanity will probably be able to deal with the the consequences of those. Um, there are some um, rather faster acting tipping points ahead of us. Um, one that um, one that I think about uh, often is the is something called AMOC, the Atlantic Meridion, Meridional uh, overturning circulation. This is this is part of an enormous current which takes warm water from the equator up to the Arctic and then cold water back from the Arctic to the equator. Uh, if, if, this, um, if this current were to stop, uh, the effects would be quite dramatic. Uh, temperatures in in Europe would fall maybe five or six degrees. Temperatures in North America would fall two or three degrees. Um, it is thought that um, this great ocean circulatory system might stop um, if, if, um, if warming reaches somewhere between one and a half and maybe four degrees. One and a half is not so far away. And as far as, um, as, far as the scientists can tell, there are now signs that this, this uh, circulation, this amok, is slowing down. So if it were to stop, there would be uh, profoundly dramatic consequences, certainly for for Europe
0: and also for the world. And we would think of the Amoc as really more colloquially as the Gulf Stream, which keeps Britain nice and temperate.
1: So the, the Gulf Stream is part of the Amoc. It feeds into the Amok... Um, um, uh, uh, another Another um, part of the amic is something called the subpolar gyre, <laughs> and the subpolar gyre stopping uh, is thought to have been one of the causes of the mini ice age in europe in in, in, in medieval times that could, uh, as far as it is understood, that could stop on a 10-year timescale. Uh, also, at uh, the kind of warming that we that will be seeing by, as we go into the 2030s. So, some quite interesting uh, tipping points um, ahead. Um, one that I might just mention is, is, um, is the consequence of a three-degree Uh, increase in global warming. We're at 1.1, 1.2 degrees right now. Um, If if we carry on how we're going for the rest of the century, we will certainly get through three degrees. And it is thought that at three degrees, um, there will be simultaneous droughts in the big breadbasket uh, farming regions. So there could be a collapse um, in, in farming in, in, in uh, many of the world's important farming regions. Um, that would be something to that would cause, again, uh, ha- havoc on, on a global scale.
0: And um, <coughs> You're putting a probability on this of? <laughs> so... Um, <coughs> Because I try to be analytical,
1: I define uh, 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 a really bad event. I call it an apocalyptic event, and I I define it as something like a a 20% reduction in world output, an event that causes a 20% reduction in world output. And if one runs through the major things that are happening in the world including for example the possibility of of artificial general intelligence um, which which itself could be an apocalyptic event i reckon that we are at a probability of something like one in four of seeing an apocalyptic event in the next century and that is a very high probability of something which would be quite devastating
0: a sort of black death for the modern age, but more permanent?
1: Well, yes, uh, we would be talking in the the case of of, uh, climate change or the destruction of nature, which is also capable of triggering an apocalyptic event. We would be talking about something which was permanent and from which there was no way back. So... On the one hand, we've got social tipping points, which fill, fill one with uh, optimism. And on the other hand, uh, we, are, we have dialed up the risk. We're running the... We humans now are running the planet, and we're running it with a huge appetite
0: for risk. And this is a talk that you're giving to independent directors <laughs> at uh, FTSE 100 companies? Uh, I give it to anyone who uh, who's interested okay. in hearing... Uh, what the world
1: looks like if you cut through all the uh, all the politicking and just go straight for the science. Yes,
0: and the reason you do that is in your role as chair of client Earth, maybe warning them that there's potentially a few you know, lawsuits coming their way if they don't appropriately <clears throat> manage the risk. No, um, so uh, I I do it
1: because uh, I want. Senior as many senior people who are interested to hear as I can find to be informed. Um, I mean the view that I give them is is a very analytical view. Uh, the, the points are all, the the the, the, um, the sense I give them of how the future might evolve, evolve is all based on um, on thorough scientific research. It's very difficult um, to um, to argue against it in a scientific and, uh, uh, in a scientific way, of course one can dismiss it out of hand these views, but but um, one can 't uh, dismiss the science now, I think it's important that um, senior people, directors of, of quoted companies understand this point of view uh, because it is what will drive the way the world evolves. As a separate matter, um, uh, one of the things we do at Client Earth is is bring legal actions against governments and against companies to try and enforce the environmental laws that uh, governments have approved and adopted. Uh, governments qu- are quite good at uh, at, uh, at uh, talking about um, their plans for reducing emissions and so on. They are rather less bad. Uh, rather less good, I'm sorry, at implementing those plans. So on behalf of the public, we try and enforce the law and make governments do what they say they will do and make companies do what they say they are doing.
0: And you have successfully sued the UK government over their climate plan, which is what, one page long? <laughs> so uh,
1: we have sued the, the, the UK government a number of times because the UK government... Certainly, in the last decade, uh, has um, got into the habit of saying quite grandiose things and 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 um, uh, and saying it has plans to do things. And in fact, there is very little substance to uh, to those statements. So we take the British government to court and we ask a court to examine whether what the British government says complies with its treaty obligations. For example, under the Uh, under the the Paris uh, Climate Change Agreement. And the court has, in general, found that they are not in compliance and that they should do rather more. And um, we did this um, last year. The British government has has an obligation to produce a plan to reduce emissions to zero by 2050. Uh, And what it essentially has is the back of an envelope. Um, We thought it should have a rather more considered uh, plan, and the court agreed with us.
0: You mentioned earlier, you know, the grounds for optimism were on social change. and we, we I think we can reflect that in the investment industry where, you know, the discussions on climate change well, while still heated, um, are now, you know, the norm. You know, there's a constant discussion and that reflects a wider civil society interest in the topic. But the law is very dependent on changing social norms. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and how how the judiciary is beginning to think about climate change and, and framing future laws and legal action.
1: So um, one of the things we we do at um, Client Earth is we advise China's environmental judiciary, which is a very interesting thing to do. Um, and we uh, part of our advice is to keep uh, the Chinese judiciary and indeed the Chinese prosecutors, environmental prosecutors, is to keep them abreast with all the latest decisions on environmental cases which are being made around the world. And um, to do that, we we convene a panel of judges to help train uh, the Chinese judges and prosecutors. And uh, from that, you can gather that um, that judges in different jurisdictions are all talking to one another about this particular subject because it's, it's evolving rapidly. And they um, when they hear cases, of course, um, uh, they have expert opinions from scientists. So in their minds, in the minds of the judges, the science is is quite clear. The expert opinions always say the same sort of thing. And the... The the judges have to look at existing laws, they have to look at environmental laws, and they also have to think about what kinds of judgments are acceptable to the public and acceptable to society. So as society becomes um, uh, more aware of the the potentially devastating consequences of, of climate change, it becomes easier for judges to make judgments which help, <clears throat> which help evolve uh, the law on, uh, on on both as it regards climate change and the destruction of nature, and to make decisions which encourage governments and companies to do more, to do what they should be doing. In fact,
0: and uh, it's really interesting you talk about you know, the use of the law in China. I think um, Client Earth were invited was it over five years ago to. Advised the Supreme Court in China on enforcement of envi- better environmental standards and outcomes through the law. Can you tell a little bit more about that? Because people would perceive China and climate in, in often a very sort of negative way. We see the headlines about more coal-fired power station, big emitters, but it seems that like there's maybe a more subtle story going on.
1: There's a very interesting story um, going on, which is that the um, the senior um, uh, Chinese politicians um, led by Xi Jinping um, want to create what they call, and they call it completely openly, an ecological civilization. So they want to create, perhaps in, in, in more Western language, a sustainable uh, civilization. And um, China has had for um, uh, quite a long time very, very good environmental laws. Um, a very good framework for bringing uh, actions, but they hadn't been using it up to about uh, five or six years ago because they had been busy doing other things. Um, uh, The the judiciary decided it now was the right time, five years ago was the right time for bringing um, environmental actions. So they asked Client Earth, as being um, one of the global leaders in bringing environmental actions, to to come and um, update them on what was going on around the world and then to train both the judges and the judiciaries. Since we began the training programme, the Chinese uh, environmental prosecutors have brought 100,000 actions a year. About half of those have been uh, against state-owned enterprises and 95% of the actions have been successful. And it has produced... uh, a very noticeable difference in the behaviour of Chinese companies. They no longer flout environmental laws because
0: they know they will be punished. Um, We had the same in Britain going back into the last century, the 1956 Clean Air Act cleaned up London.
1: So that is what is happening in China right now. And of course, China is the world's largest emitter and, of, and its emissions are still going up a bit. But I think anybody who uh, talks a lot with China is convinced by the conviction of uh, the, the, the senior Chinese leaders to bend the curve of emissions down. And I think a lot of commentators are expecting Chinese emissions to peak certainly this decade, possibly by mid decade, and then to start this long trend downwards until they reach zero in two thousand and sixty China has said it will uh, reach net zero in two thousand and sixty, and I think that is that is something which should be taken seriously
0: we 've talked with other guests on this podcast about incentives in the system shaping behavior, and that 's certainly where the law can be used to help incentivize the correct behaviour. And, you know, I think China, China's changing attitude is a reflection of it's good for civil society if you have a cleaner environment. But also, they're not long of resources, no. are they? So this is self-interest at the end of the day.
1: So, so there are three very strong drivers in China. Uh, one is to create an ecological um, civilization. China will suffer a lot from climate change if we don't get this, if we don't get it under control. So there's that. But uh, secondly, um, energy security has, for obvious reasons, gone right to the top of uh, everybody's agenda. So energy security is now driving um, Uh, investment in in renewables and so on. But the third thing, which is very particular to China, is there's a global market for cleantech, and China is the global leader. So there's a huge market for Chinese companies to capture. So every reason for China to push as hard as it can.
0: I think already 51% of the batteries for electric vehicles are now produced in China. That is that is. Correct
1: and BYD is the leading um, electric vehicle producer by number of units. In fact, the the BYD um, flagship vehicle, which competes with the Tesla, sells for twenty five thousand dollars. So, uh, a big step down on the Tesla price, but with all the with all the performance of a Tesla. Uh,
0: one of the other areas that we're seeing a lot of interest in is biodiversity, Mm -hmm. nature. Can you say a little bit about how you think the law is going to be used in protecting the natural world outside of the climate element?
1: So um, back in, gosh, um, late November or December, there was um, the, the, the Biodiversity COP. COP means conference of parties. A Biodiversity COP held in Montreal... Under the auspices of China, um, and um, uh, we, Client Earth, were um, China's advisers during that, um, which was which was quite uh, remarkable, and um, the the outcome was the uh, agreement. To set aside thirty percent of the planet for nature by twenty thirty, and thirty percent of the planet means thirty percent of the land and thirty percent of the oceans, uh, in an attempt to uh, preserve biodiversity. Now, in, in case the numbers aren't before you, um, the the um, the uh, the wild biomass, the mass of wild. Animals and insects is reducing at something like ten to twenty percent a decade, depending on which species you look at. If you reduce something by ten to twenty percent per decade, you get close to zero quite quickly um, and The reason that uh, while biomass is is decreasing at something like ten to twenty percent per decade is that we humans have essentially created Uh, a world that is hostile to wildlife. I mean, it's quite remarkable how we've done it. We we are uh, geoengineering the planet in such a way that it's hostile to anything that we don't don't value, and we haven't been valuing nature. Um, If we really push um, the decline in wild biomass um, to the limit... Eventually, the natural world will collapse if you don 't have insects you don 't have plants and if you don 't have plants you don 't have anything so this the biodiversity um, crisis is just as important for humans as the climate crisis and the Montreal agreement uh, in, in uh, made last year in uh, uh, the biodiversity agreement is is a very important step to turning that around
0: now as you talk you, you use the phrase there. Uh, geoengineering is the stuff of science fiction almost but we are talking potentially about the the sixth great extinction yep. that we're uh, you know, can, can we actually use the law to give nature rights <laughs> i know new zealand has, uh, has done a lot on that
1: I'm very glad you've raised the point of the sixth great extinction. So um, there have been, in the last 500 million years, um, uh, five great events where there have been massive changes in the climate accompanied by um, uh, mass extinctions. So you could say that these events come something like once every 100 million years. So what we are going through right now is a once-in-a-hundred-million-year event. And so when one looks at the forecasts of of economists in particular about what is likely to happen from climate change, what you can be clear about is they are all absolutely wrong because we're way in the tail of the distribution of possible outcomes. It's a very interesting and highly uncertain time. Now, uh, to address your point, can can the law make a difference? And the answer is the law can make a difference if society and if politicians want it to. So in China, uh, where the politicians want the law to make a difference, the law is making a huge difference. In uh, the European uh, democracies, where um, the people um, uh, generally are supportive of Um, environmental laws being used to try and improve uh, the lives that people lead, uh, the law is already making a huge difference. There are other places in the world um, where, uh, in autocracies or in places where there isn't a social consensus on, um, on taking action to reduce climate change and the destruction of nature, where it's much more difficult for the law to make progress but one must keep trying.
0: And I was going to ask what you thought what this meant for the asset management industry. You're a former CEO of an asset manager and that's when you and I first met talking about the impending global financial crisis and getting people to understand the tipping point What uh, for what that would mean for certain sectors like banking was the most obvious one and people's reluctance. How do we actually think about tipping points here in the climate, you know, to me, the worry I have is that we're, we're going to have to wait for some you know, climate catastrophe um, to actually get everybody to wake up to the, reality, you know, to the reality that the world is changing and changing rapidly. So um, asset managers, in my experience,
1: are very, very conservative, and they are very sceptical of, of new paradigms. So, um, as far as clean tech goes, of course, asset managers will will spot um, new trends there and profitable opportunities and uh, and invest uh, in them. Um, as far as trying to as as far as responding deeply to the dangers of future climate change and the destruction of nature, I think asset managers are too conservative, and if i dare say it too short sighted to really take into account um what is likely to happen i say short sighted um not um not to attack my former colleagues but simply be because their time horizon is, is a quarter or a year or, or maybe three years, whereas um, the, the, the climate change and destruction of nature is playing out over decades, two or three or four decades to, to see really very large effects. I think all that the the, the, the um, asset management industry can do is be part of this social shift towards attaching much greater value to the preservation of nature and the reduction of of harmful emissions by constantly engaging with the companies um, that they own to try and shift the behaviour of the boards of directors to being more responsible about these things and also to engage with their clients just to increase awareness of just how serious the problem that we face really is
0: and, you know, for us so that 's part of our sort of collaborative our system level engagement you know working with people like the University of Exeter, and actually you know hoping to extend the debate part of that being this this podcast um, it, but it, you know it is a mismatch of time horizons, and that 's some, some of the challenges but what what I think I have found is that the major asset owners. Uh, you know, the big sovereign wealth funds, the most significant pension funds in the world. When it comes to the engagement with the corporations or indeed engagement with policymakers, they're the ones who probably can actually do more rather than subcontracting it to the investment managers. I think they have a more direct voice as being significant systemic players in the market.
1: Yes. And I think it's very important that there is continual engagement at the highest possible level with uh, directors of companies and indeed with with um, with politicians and government officials, it's import. It's it's deeply important that the people who have the time and resources to understand this problem continually engage with those whose actions are helping to cause it, and who could undertake actions to reduce the problem. So company directors need constantly to hear that if they are not reducing emissions not reducing the use of plastics to to raise another one uh, uh, and and persisting in destroying nature that they will lose their social license to operate the the parameters with uh, within which Society defines acceptable behavior are shifting and they are going to shift more and more rapidly as the consequences of climate change and the destruction of nature become more apparent.
0: And from an investment management point of view, you know, often people try to characterize those environmental challenges as externalities to the business model, but what they represent those externalities are actually future potential risks that can and probably will be internalised into business models. Uh, And that's where the law comes in as well as in enforcing that obligation.
1: So you can characterise something as an externality when what you're interested in is a small part of a very large system, and the large system is, is the externality that is no longer the case. Human activities are a very large part of a finite system. There is no longer an externality we're part of, we're part of a, a, of a chain of interactions and a chain of feedback loops, and those feedback loops are now operating with vengeance. Um, the legal system is also part of, uh, of, of that feedback loop and it is beginning to operate quite strongly. There's um, in, in the last four or five years, there have been a, a, a whole rash of decisions uh, both against governments saying that they have to do more and against companies saying that they are liable for the, the, the climate damage they're causing uh, – my own sense is that uh, the feedback loops are increasing in speed and intensity. So there will be more and more of these actions. And so directors, I mean, the defence for company directors is, of course, to behave well. It's the standard defence from time immemorial. So Company directors should be thinking very carefully how they can reduce emissions and, and stop destroying nature before the actions appear on their
0: doorstep. One of the overarching themes that has emerged in the, today and in my other podcast is the systems level thinking yep. that we all have to apply. Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, talked about the tragedy of the commons. And it is that role that we, that we all play. It's not always about direct action, but it's about raising our voice and changing the system through yep. showing that we care. Yep. No, it,
1: it, at every level, uh, people need to do what they can do. It, there, needs, it, there needs to be constant attention to uh, the problems of climate change and the destruction of nature wherever attention can be given. And it's very important for the asset management industry to be part of that paying attention and constantly talking to clients on the one hand and companies on the other and indeed to governments about the need constantly to take action.
0: We did touch on Armageddon (laughs) at one point, but just just to leave our our, our, our listeners on a sort of an upbeat note, what's your sort of your area of optimism that you'd like to sort of emphasise? Oh, so... um,
1: ..from a a technological point of view, the thing that uh, makes me very optimistic is the possibility for synthetic food and, in particular, for synthetic meat. One of the ways that uh, climate change is going to get us uh, is if farming comes under enormous pressure because of changes in the climate... We have time before we get to that point to develop um, synthetic food. And I'm particularly talking about synthetic protein, synthetic meat. Um, we can develop that which is as cheap uh, as, as as farm-produced meat and is genetically identical and will taste the same. If we could, if we could, um, if we could create a social tipping point where the world flipped from farmed meat to synthetic meat, we would go an enormous way to uh, relieving the pressure on the planet and in making ourselves secure against climate changes which, which hit badly farming. So I'm optimistic that that is possible.
0: And I'm a big fan of science fiction and one of the novels I've I just finished was talking about 3D printing of meat which we can do today
1: 3d printing of meat has been done there's a paper in nature about three years ago a wagyu beef steak was 3d printed from a printer using um using uh ink made from blood cells and and fat cells it can be done
0: so, there's a great advertisement from Isaac Asmanov who predicted the internet, the mobile phone. So there is human ingenuity does give us hope. It does, uh, very much so. Howard, it's been a pleasure catching up with you again. Thank you for your time. And of course, thank you to our listeners. Organising the Future is available on Spotify, Amazon and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe to be sure to catch every episode. If you would like to learn more about investment opportunities at J.O. Hambro Capital Management or at Regnan, please do contact your representative. Details about us, our funds and our approach to investment are on our website. Just search for J.O. Hambro in your favourite web browser.